Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Are you excited for the next series? I'm pretty excited for it myself. Um, so I'm going to just make a shameless plug for my own, the ministry area that I work in just because I can, because I'm here and I'm up here and this is an opportunity to do it. Um, but many of you know, uh, New Spring does have a ministry to married couples uh, and, and pre-married couples as well, but it's called Married Life Ministry. And Wendy and I have been uh, leading that ministry for years um, and we love it, and you've heard about our marriage retreat that you know we do every year, which, by the way, I think we're down to like seven slots for that, so something to think about if you're thinking about doing the marriage retreat. Um, but I'll tell you, my heart has been that we've, over the years, been very reactive in that we're always trying to be there for couples when they're going through a crisis, but my heart has been to figure out ways to be more proactive, to try to get out in front and help couples that are um, doing well, to keep doing well and to add to what's working in their marriage. And so we decided that we were going to do something called Married Life Live. It's a quarterly event. We're going to do it four times a year, and it's free. You don't even have to sign up. You just show up, right? We're calling it a date night with a purpose. It's an hour long. It goes from 7 to 8 o'clock. And we really want to encourage you to come out on that Friday night. Um, What we're going to try to do... Now, here's the statistics, ladies. The statistics are this... The statistics are that a man will go to a marriage event if it's less than an hour and a half. We made it an hour. We're just trying to stack the odds in our favor any way we possibly can, right? But this is going to be an hour packed with fun, with humor, and with at least one lesson that you can um, take home a takeaway that's going to help your marriage. So sound good? Um, Hopefully that's something that you can come to. We would love to have you be a part of it. Again, it's free. You don't have to register. You literally just show up. Um, so, <clears throat> to the message, first week of March, second week of March, for me, ever since living in Kansas, I don't know what it is about Kansas, but first week of March, second week of March, I start sounding like a frog. And actually, this is really good compared to what it will be tomorrow. I'm going to tell you right now, tomorrow it's going to be another octave lower. Um, so I'm used to it, and I'm not sick, and I don't get sick with this. I just kind of lose my voice. It happens every year. I've never seen people so freaked out about it before in my life, right? <laughs> I go to a fast food restaurant to get dinner before I came here, and I won't tell you what fast food restaurant it was because I don't want to make them feel bad because I totally understand. But I go through the drive-thru and, you know, make a little uh, pleasantries back and forth, and as I'm driving away, I see the lady with the, the pump of the hand sanitizer, <laughs> Boy, that guy sounded bad, you know? As a country, we are at least currently, or will be, in very short order, incredibly concerned with what people have and how contagious it is. What do they have? Is it contagious? How contagious is it? My question for you tonight, and this was not what I was going to speak on, but when God gave me this frog in my throat, I said, well, might as well go this direction. My, my question for you is, how contagious is your case of Jesus? If you've got a case of Jesus, and I hope that you do, how contagious is the case of Jesus that you've got? Is it enough for people around you to take notice? 
Is it enough that your neighbors or your friends or people who interact with you on a daily basis would notice? Is it something they would have to think about? If I'm around them, I might catch that case of Jesus that they've got. Because it's, it's, you know, not only do they have it, but it seems to me like it's contagious. If you get around them, you're going to catch that Jesus. How contagious is your case of Jesus? Because one of the reasons why we struggle with having a world that's going in a bad direction is because the church of Jesus Christ has not been nearly as contagious as it should be. As a matter of fact, this is not the case at New Spring. Thank God it's not the case at New Spring. <clears throat> but churches across our country have become quarantine centers for Jesus. We're, we're, not, we're not nucleus of contagion that spreads around our communities like you would expect it to, or that spreads around the world like you would expect it to. We've become the quarantine centers. Churches have become the place where if you want to experience Jesus, you've got to go deep into the church to find him. But it's not coming outside of the church to the rest of us. Fortunately, that's not the case at New Spring. But I still want to ask you, you personally, I want you to look inside. It's a heavy message. How contagious is your case of Jesus? After Jesus died, came back to life, and ascended to heaven, the apostles were in a tough spot. Jesus had just been crucified. The apostles were in trouble. <laughs> they were, you know, and there was this weird balance of power, because the powers that be could have done some things to just take the take the disciples out. The problem was that after Jesus died, the apostles' teaching and preaching was so powerful that now a huge number of people were signed on and, and believed in Jesus, and now there was this concern that if the leaders killed the disciples, they'd have a riot on their hands. So you have this sort of standoff happening. Peter and John <clears throat> going to the temple, and they see a guy there who everybody knows. He doesn't, he's not able to walk. He's lame. And he's there at the temple every day, hoping that by begging to people that were God followers, they would get, he would get some generosity and it would cover his life expenses. But Peter and John didn't have any money to give him. And when they got there, Peter looked him in the eye and said, look, I don't have any money to give you, but I'll tell you, I'll give you what I, what I have. And what I have is the power of God. He says, I'm, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand up and walk. What a weird thing to ask somebody who is lame in their feet to do. It would be cruel if the guy didn't have the power to do it. But through God's power, he raised him up and he began to walk around. And it was a big deal. Because the religious teachers that put Jesus on the cross had a front row seat for this thing to happen. Not only did they have a front row seat, but the people they had been teaching, and they had been teaching against Jesus, now saw this incredible display of power. It was a big deal. There was already this momentum going, and now there's this happening. So this is the response. The religious leaders say, what are we going to do with these guys? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. We can't deny it. Why? Because they saw it. Everybody else saw it. And so they said, but to stop this thing from spreading any further. See, when God's power is really apparent in his children, it spreads. These guys are saying, look, we got to stop this thing from spreading. Elsewise, we're going to have a Jesus epidemic on our hands. They already kind of did. To stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name, in Jesus' name. By the way, <clears throat> when you see in Jesus' name in the scriptures, it means two things. One is it, it means 
it means that you are attaching the signature of Jesus to this, right? So if my dad were to say, Jonathan, I trust you, I know that this is something that you wouldn't, you wouldn't use my signature lightly. You wouldn't use my signature in a wrong way. And if this document needs to be signed, well, you can just sign my name to it. It's one of those things. It's one of the reasons why we need to be very careful about using Jesus' name in vain. It's very common in our culture just to use, use the name Jesus just as an expletive, just to, to, to add punctuation to our speech. But we need to remember that Jesus' name, is, it's as serious a thing as somebody letting you sign their name to documents because they trust you that much. When we use Jesus' name, we use Jesus' name because we are his children and he trusts us, trusts us to use it well. But it also means in Jesus' character. In the ancient times, your name was irrevocably matched with your character. So to say that something was done in so-and-so's name meant it was done in line with their character. So they're saying, we don't want them speaking, we don't want them signing his name, we don't want them talking in his character, we don't want them talking at all, and they bring them in. And they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, I love this, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Try to stop us. We can't stop. You ever be sick and try not to pass those germs on to the rest of your family? You can't, you can't do it right? You just know that because you live in close proximity to them and because those germs have invaded your biological system, it is very likely they are going to catch what you have. And this is what God is saying, look, or Peter is saying, look, I'm sorry, but I've been invaded by Jesus. And if you're around me, you're going to get a healthy dose of the guy. I can't help that. You cannot like it. You can tell me to shut up, but it ain't going to change anything. If you're around me, you're going to get a dose of Jesus because Jesus is what I've got and I've got a bad case of it. After all, he'd seen Jesus die and come back to life. It's very hard to take away somebody's case of Jesus when you've seen that. We can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. So here's my question to you tonight. Does Satan have to worry about you starting a Jesus epidemic? How likely is that? You know, we're not worried when when there's an illness going around. And this new coronavirus thing... It's one in a long line of things that's been concerning to us that might come over, you know, or or start here, be passed along. What we're concerned is it only takes one person to spread it to several people. And then those several people will spread it to a lot of people in their spheres. And it goes recursively. It goes exponentially. That's the nature of a virus is that it spreads. All it takes is one person. So you say, Jonathan, you're saying does Satan have to worry about me starting a Jesus epidemic? I'm just one person. It's all it takes. It's all it takes. Look, if, if you had such a, a big case of Jesus that everybody around you got to share in that contagion and they begin to get a case of Jesus and then the people that they knew got a case of Jesus and the people that they knew got a case of Jesus, it changed Wichita. Probably changed our nation, changed the world. Does Satan have to worry about you starting a Jesus epidemic? Well, if you're like me and you feel like you may have a little work to do there, I want to ask the question, and we're going to answer this question tonight in the talk, and that is, how do you make sure that you're contagious? How do you make sure that you're contagious? All right, I'm going to give you three things. So if you're a note taker, if you're like me, and you're a detailed person, you're a note taker, you like to have it all down, right? I'm going to give you three things that you can write down tonight, or it's in the app. Um, 
You can take notes. But here's the first thing. If you want to make sure you're contagious, one of three things that you need to do. The first thing is this. You have to have it yourself. You can't be contagious if you don't have it. Jesus said this in Luke 6. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? By the way, here, this is just the word for boss. When we call Jesus Lord, you know, that's the word for it in English. But we should know that the word Lord means boss. When we call Jesus Lord, we're just calling him the boss. Probably would be better for us if we just called him the boss. Because in our culture, we know what the boss is. In Old English, when our Bible was translated, Lord meant boss. But now boss means boss. We ought to go around saying, if the boss wills, I'm going to go to such and such place next week. If the boss wants me to do this, hopefully I'll do this. If it's the boss's will, then I'm going to do this. Because that's what it really means to say, if it's the Lord's will, means if it's the boss's will. Why? Because who's my boss? Well, I have an earthly boss, but I have a heavenly boss who is benevolent and loving, but has tasks for me to do. And Jesus is saying, why do you call me boss? And yet you don't do what I say. I say that because there's a danger of having a future in heaven, but not having a big case of Jesus. Jesus' body and his blood was enough to pay for any person that is willing to believe on his name. That's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that you've got a big case of Jesus. Whether or not you have a big case of Jesus means are you willing to really get in the slipstream, in the pipeline of living the life that God has called you to live? Are you interested in opening up the Bible and reading God's love letter to you? Are you interested in finding out what God says about culture and the world and what we should do and what we should not do? Are those things important to you? Are we willing to get into the slipstream of God's will so that we can say, I've got it bad. I've got a bad case of Jesus. I don't just have a future in heaven. Jesus said, why do you call me boss? But you're not in the slipstream. You're not not oriented toward me. There's even a worse group of people. I don't think there's anybody like this in this room. But I will tell you, they exist. This is in Matthew 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter. You don't have it. You don't have it, he's saying. Nor will you let those enter who are trying to. He's saying, look, people would like to catch it. But they can't catch it from you because you don't have it. You say you have it, they come and hanging around you because they're hoping they'll catch it from you, but you don't have it and they don't catch it. You know, we take our kids to get those vaccines, vaccines that put just enough of that virus or whatever it is in their system for their body to decide, I don't want any of that. And it decides to kill it off or to resist it. You know what a hypocrite does? A hypocrite is like a Jesus vaccination that gives somebody just enough of a taste of something that could be real that they go, I don't want any of that. If that's what church is like, if people are gonna go to church on the weekend, but they're gonna act like that when they're my neighbor, I don't want any of that. If they're gonna treat people this way and still speak in Jesus' name, I don't want any of that. And Jesus is saying you, the, to these Pharisees and teachers of the religious law, he's saying, you're giving people a taste, but it's just enough for them to decide they don't want any of it. And it's not the real thing anyway. And what's happening is you're turning people away from the kingdom of heaven instead of helping Welcome them in. God help us to have a case of Jesus that's contagious. Here's the second part, and this is where I'm going to camp out for a little bit. If you want to be contagious, 
you're going to have to show some symptoms. You know, my world, in terms of, I'm, I'm, I do, obviously my ministry here is my main world, but I also, because I do counseling and life coaching and so forth, I've been somewhat in the psychology world over the past several years, and if you want to know what the symptoms are of any mental health diagnosis, you go to what is called the DSM, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. You can look up any mental health diagnosis, it'll tell you what the symptoms are. Why? So that you can tell whether somebody has it or somebody doesn't have it. Well, as you know, the Bible tells us what the symptoms are of having a bad case of Jesus. It's right here. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you two different places. One that's kind of big and abstract, and one that gets right down to the nuts and bolts. Here's the first one. This is in John 1:14. The word, and this is uh, just a template word for Jesus. Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. I said this in a message before. It's funny. It seems like it's every week now. It's not that I'm telling the same illustration over again. It just seems like it happens all the time. I know I shouldn't get on Facebook. I know I shouldn't get on Facebook. But I have an account. It's there, you know. And I'll look at that wall, and I'll get discouraged from looking at Facebook in about 45 seconds from two angles. I'll see people who are writing messages that are as far from the truth as they possibly could be, celebrating parts of our culture that have gotten so deplorably away from God that that it should just grieve our hearts. And to celebrate it, that just breaks my heart. But on the other hand, I'll see a post from somebody who really espouses some of the beliefs that I have, but does it in such a caustic critical, demeaning, self-centered, denigrating way that I won't have anything to do with it. And I'll end up blocking both people for different reasons. One, there's a deficit of truth because God did build our world with truth. And I know those of you who are in college right now, I understand that academia is telling you there is no such thing as truth. Truth is relative. Your truth, my truth, anybody's truth is... Bottom line is that that doesn't work in mathematics, Right? There, there is truth. Science has proven there's truth. Mathematics shows there's truth. There's objectivity. We can ignore objectivity if we want, and that's what's happening right now, but it still is what it is. Truth doesn't go away just because we disclaim it. And so there's sometimes a deficit of truth, but there's other times a deficit of grace. But I can't be too critical because God says to Jonathan, Jonathan, I, I hate to tell you this, but sometimes you've got a deficit of truth and sometimes you've got a deficit of grace. The symptoms that I should be showing if I want to be contagious should be a ton of grace and a ton of truth. Why? The Bible says Jesus was what? Full of grace and truth. And Jesus was contagious. Everywhere he went, people wanted to listen to his teaching. If you want to be contagious, you have to be full of grace and truth. You say, now, Jonathan, that's big picture. That's abstract. I don't have really good handles to hold it. Well, let's go to a different place that might make it a little bit more, like I said, we'll go nuts and bolts a little bit more here. In Galatians 5.22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the symptoms of having an amazing relationship with God are love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now you say, now Jonathan, you said we were going to get nuts and bolts. You just gave me more abstracts. Well, I knew that you would say that. Thank you for bringing it up, by the way. I appreciate that. Um, But in order to really make this practical, 
I went to the Bible language scholars who have delved into each one of these words, and I just want to give you a little bit of a breakdown of what these words mean. If you're wondering, do I have the symptoms, let's, let's make it practical, let's break it down. And by the way, this is in your notes if you're taking notes. So the first thing it says is love. And in this case, the word love means selfless other esteem, prizing others, prizing others. In marriage research, there is no name more important or recognized or well-known than Dr. John Gottman. Really cool older fella. He's kind of short. Um, he's not a Christian. He's of the Jewish faith. Um, in the, uh, let's see, late 70s, early 80s, um, he was frustrated with the work that, that had been done researching marriages before because it was always done with people coming in for therapy. And he said, well, you know, that's, that's a very lopsided view of marriage. He said, I want to find out what we can learn about marriages that are good and marriages that are struggling. So he did what is called longitudinal research, which means he gets a batch of people that he's going to study, and he stays with that same group of people over time. Had over 2,000 couples, and at over 20 years with the same group of couples, he launched a, a book that went through all the data that he had compiled. Really, really incredible statistician. He was able to prove using the research that he had done with 94% accuracy who would get divorced and who would not. 94%. We never get predictive values like that in the social sciences. Do you know what he said was the number one indicator of a marriage headed for divorce? A culture of contempt. What is contempt, you ask Dr. Gottman? This is his definition. This is Dr. Gottman's definition. It is seeing yourself as better than the other person. He said a culture of seeing yourself as better than the other person is the death nail for a marriage. It is the mark of a marriage that is headed for divorce. Well, this is bigger than marriage, and you and I both know that. We have a culture of people that are constantly, consistently, reciprocally rolling their eyes at each other. All of us are just over it. We're over it at each other. Why do they have to be that way? Why do they have to do things that way? Why can't they do things like me? Because I do it the right way. Love is the opposite of that. Now, love doesn't mean that I become a doormat and my needs don't matter. What love means is that I'm putting the other person's needs first. I'm pushing them to the front of the line. As I stand, not on this stage anymore, I stand in North Auditorium sometimes and do wedding ceremonies, and, and I always tell them, this is both a wedding ceremony and marriage counseling rolled into one. It's a two-for-one deal. I tell them, if you want to have a great marriage, I look at her and I say, you put him first, and I look at him and I say, you put her first. If you can both do that at the same time, you will have a fabulous marriage. And the moments that you struggle in marriage will be moments that you fail to do that. Are we ready to love each other? Meaning, that we're willing to put ourselves aside for a minute and put the other first. The next thing is joy. Joy. And what joy here means is infectious optimism. Infectious optimism. When I was working at Edmonds First Baptist Church, which I loved, it was a wonderful, wonderful church. Uh, I, you know, New Spring is where my heart is, but I always will have a, a fondness in my heart for the first ministry that I ever worked for. It was First Edmond. There was a fella... And I have to be cautious because some of you may have connections to Edmund. So I almost said where his office was, but I should probably just say, there's a person whose office was relatively near mine that I had to interact with on a regular basis who had infectious pessimism. 
I would go into this person's office and whatever was going well in my life, I had long forgotten by the time I left. It was like, when I left there, I just felt like I needed an antidepressant. I need some, I need some help, you know. I need to, to, to watch some Mr. Rogers or something, lift my spirit, you know. And, and, uh, but there was a guy upstairs. His name was Jonathan Pickett. He was our youth pastor. Now, I was the television ministry director and the associate worship pastor. I had no interaction, no, no need to interact with the youth pastor. Nothing on my job description had the youth pastor involved. And I assure you, nothing on his job description involved mine. I would go up to his office and sit down in his office and talk to him because he was a guy who had infectious optimism. I would leave the one person's office and say, I gotta go talk to Jonathan Pickett before I go jump in a hole somewhere, you know? Are you the kind of person that somebody will come to to feel up, to feel optimistic? Are you the kind of person that somebody can come to and by being around you, their spirit is lifted? Do you add a plus sign to their day or a minus sign? Do you have infectious optimism? You know, this, this really got in my grill today because as I was studying this and working on this, I thought, you know, usually I think about the importance of optimism. I have enough psychological training that I understand all the benefits. We know that if you're an optimist, you have typically a longer life. Your health is better. There's a whole long list of things that, that we know optimism does for you. But this was a new angle that I'm not being optimism for myself. I'm being optimism. I'm being an optimist for the people around me. That my goal being optimistic is to be infectious with my optimism, to make people around me have a better day than they started off with, to make them feel uplifted, to make them feel like, man, I just want to be around that person because when I'm around them, I feel better. Infectious optimism. The next thing is peace. And peace here simply just means tranquility. Not to bore you with stories, but to me, when I think of abstract concepts, usually the way they get practical is with stories. But my wife and I, uh, lived in Oklahoma for, oh, I guess it was eight years. I think it was eight years. And um, so what you need to know about Oklahoma, at least the northwest side, which is where we were a lot of that time, is that the dirt is not diggable for basements. Now, you're right in the middle of Tornado Alley, just like you are in Wichita, but there are no basements. Your neighbors don't have basements. You don't have basements because literally you just, you, nobody digs it. it wouldn't be, your house wouldn't be stable on top of it, and it would be treacherous to dig it out in the first place. So shelter in Oklahoma is different than shelter typically is in Kansas. We all have, there's so many basements that we're used to thinking about. Even if you don't have a basement, you know somebody who does. And so we lived at the time, this is going way back, we lived in a little two-bedroom bungalow in a, in a little suburb of Oklahoma City called Bethany. And there was a tornado coming right straight toward us. I mean, the news was saying, this is going to hit Bethany, it's going to hit it hard. But... Right down the street from our house, probably three blocks, was Southern Nazarene University. And the church that Southern Nazarene University is out of, and that church has a massive basement, biggest church basement I've ever seen in my life. I don't know how they dug that thing out, but it exists. So we drove to that church because everybody in the community was welcome to come and stay in that basement. And I remember going down there and sitting in this basement, and there was a 65, 70-year-old man opposite me listening to a Sears and Roebuck radio that had to have been 40 years old. Listening to the deal with his legs crossed and all of us just sitting there. And there was a tornado headed right for our city, but all of us were pretty calm because we knew we were all right. We're okay. We're in a place where we're safe. 
You know what I worry about sometimes is that as Christians, we don't have the tranquility that we should have knowing that God has got our back, that we're in a safe place. We may be in a difficult world, in a challenging world, in a world where bad things happen, and yet we have a God who cares enough about us that he's not going to turn his back on us. He's going to be there for us no matter what we go through. There ought to be a tranquility in that. We ought to be the person in the room who can be calm when everybody else is freaking out. When everybody, when everybody else is losing it, we ought to be the one who can sit there and say, you know what, it's going to be all right. Because God's going to be there for us no matter what happens. Tranquility, love, joy, peace. The next thing is forbearance. And this one is hard for me. Enduring with character. Enduring with character. Um, there, I have two stories I could give you for this. Both are equally embarrassing. Um, one of them I've already given you, so I guess I'll give you the other one. This is about a year after we moved to Wichita. My wife and I went to the mall, which is enough to already put me in an enduring place. Just being in the mall is like a, is like a test of endurance. But, you know, James says the trying of your faith works patience and all that. Um, we're at the mall, and I can't remember what box store it was, but Wendy and I went into this box store, and we agreed on the time that we would meet up. After. Now, this was superfluous because we both had cell phones. You don't even have to have meetup times anymore because you have cell phones. But I am so picky about meeting at the designated time that I want the time and the phone so that if there's any misunderstandings, it's all clear, right? I don't need to be standing around the mall waiting for somebody. So we, we set up our synchronized watches. This is what the time is supposed to be. Is, I got your phone number and you got my phone. Okay, fine. So we go out and, we, and, we, and I have one of the daughters with me and Wendy has one of the daughters with her. So I come out of the store at the appointed time, so let it be written, so let it be done. And <laughs> my wife is not there. And I look at the clock, and I think, this is not good. So, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling my phone out to call my beloved bride, and as I'm doing that, I look across the way, because there were these seats at the time right outside the store. I look across the way, and there's this lady kind of looking at me. I don't like, you know, that feels kind of uncomfortable. She's looking at me, and so I kind of smile at her, and she makes this big smile at me. That's great, whatever. So I call my wife, and it rings, and it rings, and it rings, and it says, Hello, this is Wendy. I can't come to the phone right now, but if you'll leave a brief message, I'll get back with you just as soon as I can. I don't want as soon as I can. I want now. Answer your phone now. This is why we have cell phones. So I call her about every 15 seconds after that, because when she finally sees her phone, I want her to see 40 missed calls. Because then when, I, when she sees me, I'm going to say, I called you 40 times. 40. She came, finally came out of that store. And she was really excited because she had found this deal. You know, she comes out. She tells me about this deal she found. For, it was really a great deal for clothes for one of the girls. She was really excited. She would gotten this. And um, boy, I let her have it. Well, if you wanted to buy it, you could have just come out and told me and then gone back out. But I, instead, I stood out here and you know what? You didn't answer your phone one time. And I'm, I'm, I'm being loud. You didn't answer your phone. <clears throat> this is early on in my ministry before I knew how many New Springers there were in the community. And <clears throat> <laughs> my wife later proved to me that I was 15 minutes off from the appointed time. Uh, so I was actually 15 minutes early, but that's a whole other thing. Um, <clears throat> so my poor wife, 
just says, Jonathan, calm down. It's going to be okay. And we're still a little, I'm still in a little tiff about this. And I see this lady who's been smiling at me the whole time. Get up, turn around, walk off. And I see a new spring shirt on her back. <laughs> this is what God does to you, right? <laughs> says, Jonathan, you want to be a pastor? I'm going to show you how to do it, bud. God's like, I have eyes everywhere. <clears throat> Enduring with character behind the person in front of you who still stopped at the green light, at the tag office, <laughs> enduring with character. Kindness, and actually there's two words here that really mean generosity. Kindness means generosity for the right reasons, and goodness means generosity motivated by character. Saying, if you, if you give, give for the right reasons. And not only should you give for the right reasons, but you should give because it is in line with who you are. Do you give based off of something that means something to you, or do you just give things that don't really mean anything to you? You don't feel it because it's not personal. Jesus says, if you want to have a, if you want to have a case of Jesus, you need to be motivated to give based off of the kind of person that you are. Faithfulness, it means being reliable and trustworthy. By the way, <clears throat> did you know, and this is something that I, I talked recently with somebody who's an expert in workplaces that people rate as great places to work. And he was telling me about the different things that predict that. But he said, you know what, Jonathan, one of the most important things that predicts this is keeping your promises. And I said, oh, you mean like if you promise somebody vacation, you give them vacation. And, you know, if you, you promise something big, like he, he said, no, it's not the big promises, it's the little ones. It's the, I'll get back with you on that. It's the, why don't you, you know, why don't you give me a couple days, I'll, I'll work it up and I'll get it back, I'll get it back to you. It's the little promises. And he said, if, if this person will keep the little promises, the person will rate it as a great place to work. But even if the benefits package is good and the money is good and all the other aspects of the job are good, they may still rate it as a bad place to work if the person they work for doesn't keep their little promises. My question to you is, in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, are you reliable and trustworthy? Whether it's a big promise or a little promise, do you keep your promises? The next one is gentleness. And gentleness means a tender, humble spirit. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm grieving over the fact that in our nation we've lost the ability to have a polite discourse with each other. It just breaks my heart. Right? There ought to be, and among God followers, Jer, the, the late Jerry Falwell used to say, if it's Christian, it ought to be better. And I agree. If we're going to have a conversation, people ought to be able to tell from the way that we talk and the tone of our talk and what we say, they ought to be able to say there's something different about that person. There's something humble about that person. There's something tender-hearted about that person. That person really cares about other people, and you can hear it in what they say and how, in their demeanor and the way that they come across. If you want to be contagious, not just with people outside your home, but even with people inside your home. Some of us need to apologize to our spouse. Some of us need to apologize to our kids for not being humble and tender-hearted. You say, but Jonathan, we've got real problems. Okay, but approach them with humility and a tender heart. You'd be surprised how much quicker you'll get where you need to go that way than being critical and caustic and prideful. Self-control, another tough one for me. That's able to tell yourself no. 
it's been a running joke around here and something I like to kind of point out when I'm preaching because I like to poke fun at myself sometimes, but I have put on some weight. As a matter of fact, this shirt I put on tonight and I said, Wendy, this shirt is not long enough because I have gained some girth that now pushes forward and it lifts everything up. So I need, I need longer shirts, you know? I don't need to work out. I just need longer shirts. One of the things that I've been working on lately is there's a certain kind of soda pop that calls my name. I'm not going to tell you what kind of soda it is. That wouldn't be appropriate in this arena, but I will say in the South, we use it as a term for any soda of any sort, right? When you order it. Those of you in the South, you know what I'm saying. Um, Right? And there's this other putrid liquid that you're supposed to drink. See, it says putrid, right? Oh, purified. Sorry. I'm I'm sorry about that. Um, Can you say no to the wrong thing and say yes to the right thing? That's an important deal. That'll make it or break it. Your neighbors want to know, can you say no to the wrong thing and say yes to the right thing? Your kids want to know, can you say no to the wrong thing and say yes to the right thing? Your employer wants to know, can you say no? Did you know that it is epidemic that employees take little things from their employers? And so employers now are watching more and more carefully. Will they take pens from the workplace? Well, will, will they take little things? Because if they'll take little things, what are they saying? If you can't say no to the wrong things and say, right, say yes to the right things with the little things, how can you say no to the wrong things and say yes to the right things when it's a big thing? Don't be fooled. A lot of people are looking at you to, say, to see if you can say no. Can you tell yourself no? As a matter of fact, I told my eldest daughter, I said one of the most important things you can look for and, and a young man, someday, someday you're going to be inundated with young men. You know, I'm going to have to beat them off with a stick because they're going to be converging on my house. You know? And you, I, told, I told her, I said, you're going to have so many to pick from, you're going to be in real trouble. But I said, when you do have so many to pick from, one thing you have to find is a guy who can tell himself no. Because if you can't do that, you can't be trustworthy with anything. So you got to show the symptoms, right? I said, first off, you have to have it. I'm in overtime. Can I say no to overtime? First, first, you have to have it. Second, you have to show symptoms. And then this is the final thing. You have to take it to people who don't have it. It's one thing to be contagious around other people that already have it. And that has been the way churches have been traditionally. Is everybody who already has it gets together and pass it all around again. But nobody's passing it around to people that don't have it. I'm going to tell you the story, and then we'll be done. Well, let me read you this passage first. Acts 20, Luke says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And what is the task? The task of testifying to the good news of the gospel of God's grace. I was in Phoenix a few weeks ago. And uh, when I was in Phoenix... Uh, I meant to meet up with a pastor named Charles Sheffy. Charles served at First Edmund with me years ago. He's planning an amazing church, the church at Estrella, just a wonderful church there in a suburb of Phoenix. I'm so excited for him. Uh, you can be praying for Charles Sheffy and his amazing church. Wonderful, wonderful start up there. 
But I met up with Charles, and we met up at a restaurant. He picked the restaurant, and we, we went in, and I was just looking forward to talking to him about what God was doing at New Spring, hearing about what God's doing at the Church of Estrella. And we sat down to the table, and um, the guy came out and took our drink order, and, and Charles made some small talk with him, and nothing that seemed unusual to me. Uh, and then the, the guy brought out our food, and then Charles went off the rails. Charles looked at the guy, and he said, now, Peter, uh, we're getting ready to pray for our food. And I thought, oh, dear me, Charles. What are you going to do, man? And he said, I just wonder, Peter, is there anything that we can pray for you for? Anything at all? And I thought, oh, my gosh, this, I just want to melt into a puddle on the ground. I don't do this. I don't do this. And he said, uh, the guy said, and I was amazed because the guy said, you know what, actually, I'm moving from an old apartment to a new apartment, I'm really nervous about it. It's kind of a weird situation. I won't go into a lot of details, but I'm pretty nervous about it. And then Charles did something that I just was like, could you embarrass me anymore? He said, well, would you like to stand here right now with us while we pray for you? And the guy said, yes, I would. And I sat there while my friend Charles prayed for my new friend Peter about his moving from an apartment to another apartment. And when that guy left, I thought, Charles, I did not tell him this, but I thought, you embarrassed me so bad. That guy is going to think that we are so weird. He's going to think that we are out of our mind. We're getting ready to leave. And the guy comes over and he says, I want to thank you for praying with me. I'm not sure anybody else knows I'm going through a rough time. I want to thank you for praying with me. And it hit me as I walked out of that restaurant. Jonathan, you're called to be weird. Is this not what you're supposed to be doing? I, I really had a moment of conviction in the parking lot of that restaurant saying, why did it seem weird to me? This is what we're called to be doing. This is what we've been tasked to do, is to share the good news of Jesus and to care about others. And Charles wasn't recruiting for his church. I didn't hear him mention the church at Estrella one time. He just wanted this kid to know somebody was happy to pray for anything that he was going through in his life. And you know what? The guy told us what to pray for and thanked us for the fact that we prayed for him. How contagious is your case of Jesus? Because it's your call. You could go out here tomorrow and just keep on floating by. Or you could be the one person that starts an epidemic of Jesus in the community of Wichita in this country of ours. It's your choice. Let's do it. Let's become contagious for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us. Help us to be grounded and firmly rooted in that and prepared to share with anybody that we see, anybody that we encounter, to share your love, to be humble in our spirit, to be optimistic, infectiously optimistic, and to show this world something that it very rarely sees. And we'll thank you in advance for what you're going to do in and through that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Y'all take care. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.